Hello and welcome to Impact Voices, your guide to the people, companies, and ideas that are transforming how capital is deployed in pursuit of a better, more sustainable world. I'm your host, Brian Walsh, head of impact for LiquidNet, the progressive financial services company. And I'm joined today by my two co-hosts, David Bank, who's editor-in-chief of Impact Alpha, joining us from San Francisco. Hi, David. Hi, Brian. Great to be here again. And with me here in New York City is Imogen Rose-Smith, a senior writer with Institutional Investor. Hello, Imogen. Hi, Brian. So on today's show, we're going to feature a conversation that David had with Nancy Fund of DBL Investors. But first, let's get right into it. Let's talk about one of the tensions at the heart of impact investing. If impact investors are those who seek to make positive social and environmental returns alongside positive financial returns, what happens if they make too much money? Is that a thing? Can you get filthy rich doing impact investing? And if so, is that good or bad? Brian, we've waded right into the heart of the matter here. And this is the, this is the conversation that will get the impact crowd riled up you know, time after time. And, um, <laughs> and you don't want to see that crowd riled up. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, I think we do want to see that crowd riled up. But it's, it's an interesting debate because impact, frankly, has already taken on the branding that it is below market. Now that So you uh, think that in most people's mind impact investing equals concessionary or so-called discount investing. Well, I've talked to a lot of investors who do not want to be tarred with the word impact at all because when they go to their limited partners and they're looking to raise money themselves, they want to be seen as market rate or frankly above market rate because no fund manager goes to investors and says, "I want to I want to, you know, match the S&P 500 index with my fund here. They want to beat the market and that's why that's why they attract investment. And so they do not want to be called impact. Now they'll when you talk to them, they'll say, "Hey, you know, we're all sustainable and we're in sustainable ag and we're in renewable energy and we serve, you know, this market or that market in a very impactful way." Just don't call us impact investors. So Imogen, do you write for Institutional Investor Magazine? So you, you understand the landscape of institutional investors. Do you think that there is a perception bias around the impact label? Absolutely. It is starting to change a little bit. People are starting to come around. Milken had a panel at the last Milken conference about with institutional investors talking about how they really were impact investors but they really are very much in the minority. It is still considered a negative thing. And I mean, again, the majority of true institutional investors really aren't talking about this at all. Now, obviously, they've been making impact investing investments their entire life, right? That is, every single investment is an impact. It's the question of what impact are you having and how aware are you of that? So I think when you think about sort of how much money are we making from this, it's a question of how much money are you making and at what cost, right? So, for example, I mean, microloans the classic example. By extending capital to parts of the world that don't have capital, you are having a huge beneficial impact. But at what point does that become exploitative? And I think that that is the very challenging tension when you're talking about making impact investments. So is this where impact investors are damned if they do and damned if they don't, David? 
they're damned if they if they don't make money for their investors because then it's, they're not seen as serious investors, and they're damned if they do make too much money because then they're seen as exploiting the poor uh, or, or vulnerable or however they're trying to have an impact, they're exploiting that in order to make money. And so there's seen as a kind of a queasiness around that. Would you say that's the case, David? Well, that does come up. I mean, Imogen's uh, comment made me think of the classic example of that, which is kind of a, a Rorschach test for impact investors in terms of where you stand on it, which is the the IPO of SKS Microfinance back in 2010, which was one of the early microfinance successes, and they had a spectacular IPO, and a bunch of folks in the impact world made a bunch of money and effectively got tarred and feathered for it by some by some other quarters. But some of those folks would say, look, this is how it's supposed to work. We found a, a way to extend financial services to a part of the population that hadn't been able to access that. And uh, now there's you know millions of customers getting loans for small businesses and other things. And um, that made uh, a good business and it went public and it made some money. And that, you know, is fuel for the for the next business that can also make some money and also have an IPO. So people can see what they want in the picture. So Imogen, though, is that is, is there such thing as making too much money from impact? Yeah, I think there I think that is in so much as you have to think about the long term. Right. If you're making too much money in the short term, then is that really sustainable? So the impact view is, you know, this is something that has to benefit the community over the the extreme long term. And therefore, we will all do better as opposed to I'm going to make a ton of money right now. And going forward, it doesn't matter. I, I think, for example, an interesting space to think about is healthcare. So healthcare is another area that if you're talking about impact investing or even like sustainable investing or ESG, it's a big focus, there's a lot of opportunity there. But it only really works if you think about not just medicine, but the cost of medicine and the cost of access. So it is possible to make too much money off impact if you're purely thinking about the short term. But, but what, what would you say to those who say that it's actually good that we have some people in the impact investing space who are calling themselves self-identified, self-described impact investors who are making money, who are showing great returns, because ultimately uh, a lot of people say that in order for impact investing to take off, we need to bring in huge sums of capital. We need to move beyond just the subsidized below market returns capital, because that's a finite pool of capital. And we need to bring in large sums of capital, either from retail investors or through institutional investors. Um, and in order to do that, we need to show that you can actually make a whole bunch of money. You no, can absolutely. become filthy you rich. Can, you can make a whole bunch of money. You can become filthy rich. But you have to think about, so, so energy is a great example of where we know that people are going to make an awful lot of money as they figure out this problem. And that's a great thing. But I think you have to be cognizant of how you're making that money and for what costs. So David, how do you see people that you speak to wrestle with this, this trade-off? Well, this is actually the genesis of the name Impact Alpha, because our proposition was that there are dynamics going on uh, in the marketplace, in the world economy, that are not yet fully priced into the market. So therefore, there are unexploited values, both on the upside, you know, opportunities, new markets, new technologies, new approaches, new business models. And then there's also unappreciated risks on the downside. And 
you know, climate being the, the most well-known, but other risks as well in, in, in income inequality and in, in other kinds of resource shortages. And that if you are an investor and you know something that the rest of the market doesn't know yet, there's going to be some way to play that where either you can reduce your risks and therefore, you know, get paid more for something that's actually uh, uh, reduces your risk, or you could obviously make money on some new new approach that, that other people haven't discovered yet. So, you know, I do think that there are opportunities to make above market, not just market rate returns, but above market rate returns in impact investing. Now, that said, you know, and I think Imogen was getting at this as well, those are long-term propositions in some cases. You have to maybe plow the ground for quite a long time with, uh, with concessionary money, with grants, with other kinds of things to, to prove out the business models, to, to enter a new market. And so there does need to be sort of patience in this. A lot of it is about the time horizon of your investment. And there does still need to be um, money that comes in that, that mitigates that risk. There needs to be foundations that take on first losses or, or, or development banks that uh, put in loan guarantees of various sorts. So the, the long term, yes, these things are going to make money. The short term, there's going to be lots of ups and downs, lots of failures, and uh, everybody needs to sort of take a deep breath. Well, David, let's turn now to your conversation with Nancy Fund of DBL Investors. It's an interesting conversation, uh, just to put a point on this, which is they started actually um, with a, a fund that, that had a hard time raising money from commercial investors, and they got concessionary investors, foundation investors, who put in money for what was a risky proposition at the time. And as we'll hear in the interview, uh, it worked out pretty well. Welcome, Nancy Fund of DBL Partners. You've just raised a $400 million fund, one of the largest impact funds to date. How is raising for this fund different from your first fund? Well, it's great to be here, David. Thanks for, for having me. The answer is so much more attention and enthusiasm for this field than we experienced in the early days. We really feel like the time has come for the mainstreaming of impact funds. And, and we saw that in our fundraising, that we attracted a diverse set of very high quality limiteds from endowments to family offices to banks and pension funds and you know a lot of great categories represented. Back in the early days, I think you were called the Bay Area Equity Fund and your investment proposition was considered pretty edgy for the time. What's changed? Yeah, our first fund was 75 million when we were still part of JP Morgan. And it was quite an uphill struggle to get that raised. And the investments came largely from banks who wanted CRA credit and PRIs, program related investments from foundations. And so, you know, we did make our target, but that was a very different mix than it is today, as you've really seen that with, you know, some great results and with the growing attention to wanting to do more with your philanthropic dollar than just accomplish your mission, that you you also can, as you invest, um, invest in, in sync with your mission. You know, that was a pretty unheard of uh, approach back when we started. And today, it just feels like everyone is, you know, moving toward that goal. That's interesting. As I understand program-related investments, they're, they're generally considered to be uh, below market or concessionary. How's that worked out for those 
for those LPs from from that first fund? (laughs) Well, it was a nice outcome, but a little problematic because if you're a market rate fund and, you know, you have some really, you know, home runs in your portfolio, you know, a PRI isn't exactly the best way to approach that. And so we've been glad that foundations have broadened their approach to invest in funds like ours without the very strict kind of governing principles of a PRI. Oh, that's interesting. So now you get foundation investments, but it comes from the other side of their balance sheets, I suppose, from the from the endowments themselves. Yeah, I mean, we get mission-related investments. We get investments from the corpus. Uh, yeah, we, we, we are not a PRA fund anymore. I mean, it's they were delighted, of course, that they got these returns, but not the best fit because there's no concessionary aspect to what we do. I want to get into some of those home runs in a minute, but tell us a little bit about yourself. You came out of the traditional investment world, J.P. Morgan, as you said, Hamburg and Quist. You went through the tech VC ups and downs of those decades. How did you personally come to this new approach? Well, I, I like to look back at it and see that it was sort of in gestation for many years, because while I love working with entrepreneurs and I've loved being a traditional venture capitalist, I've always had a thread of my own kind of psyche that was very public oriented. And uh, the first job that I had getting out of college, for example, I went to work for the Sierra Club in Washington, D.C. At H&Q, I wasn't just a venture capital partner. I ran our government affairs, our philanthropy, our community engagement, largely because no one else (laughs) wanted to do it. But these things have always mattered to me. And so when we started out with the Bay Area Council, a local business group that kind of had this idea of having funds that pay attention to place as they create strong economic and financial performance, it knitted together the kind of two facets of my job. And my boss at the time basically said, Nancy, you should do this because you know you love policy, you love social change, but you also love venture capital and working with entrepreneurs. And this takes two jobs and combines it into one. So that was kind of how we got started. I know a lot of the investments you guys have made have a clear environmental or social benefit, Tesla's electric cars or Ecologic's packaging waste reduction or Revolution Foods with healthy school lunches. But I think you've tried to bring something additional as well in terms of local economic development, as as you say. Tell us about that. Yeah, we're very committed to bringing the benefits of the entrepreneurial economy to places, to neighborhoods that have not benefited from that in the past. Because time and time again, when that happens, good things start to go forward. And so we do pay attention to job creation and to putting jobs in low-income neighborhoods. And so, for example, when we were told the story of Pandora, which is obviously not a sustainability company, we loved it, not just because we thought that digital music, digital radio was going to be very important, but because they were headquartered in in Oakland and they were creating jobs right there in downtown Oakland and starting a path toward a kind of entrepreneurial renaissance that is now existent there. So that's been a really great tool for us because it allows us to have a broader mandate to diversify our returns, so, and which is always a good thing from a, a fund management point of view, but also to show that you know, impact can live in any company, not just a company whose business itself has an obvious sustainability or impact aspect to it. Have those kind of specific, explicit impact goals Are those part of the new fund as well? Yes. We have always counted jobs and tracked zip codes. So, you know, not every company that we work with is in a low-income neighborhood and never has been that way. But we do try to 
to work that in. And obviously, if it's not a good thing for the company to be in such a neighborhood, then if it's not good for the business, we don't push it. But oftentimes, we just help our companies understand that there can be benefits. You know, the rent is cheaper, obviously. Also, you know, sometimes you're in a targeted economic zone and you can get, for example, free workforce training dollars, or you can get a low interest loan for your equipment. I mean, There are certain government programs out there that you can take advantage of if you're in a low-income neighborhood. And if that works for you and it works for the the regional government or the state government that has that program, you know, it's it's clearly a win-win. Now, some of your other companies, you know, you've had win-wins as well. Solar City's gone public. I think its market value is about four and a half billion. I think it's taken a hit this year, but it's still a home run or a grand slam by any definition. That wasn't always clear, as I understand it. Tell us about taking Solar City public. Wow, that was back in December of 2012 when we were just emerging from a few years of hard times where clean tech was kind of politicized in a way that obscured the underlying fundamental strong growth that the sector had. You know, from 2010 to 2012 was a tough time. We tried to take the company public earlier and there was just no appetite and solar stocks were not behaving well and Solyndra was in the headlines and people didn't understand that solar was actually going to be this huge market and that the costs were coming down at such a fast rate that the market was expanding much the same way as we have seen in electronics over the you know several decades, whenever the costs come down, all of a sudden computing power gets more accessible and, and more uh, ubiquitous. And so that story was not widely known and there was, there was a hangover effect from that Solyndra period and some of the, the public solar stocks that were not behaving well. And so by just the thinnest of threads, we were able to hang on and get that IPO done at a lower price than we had anticipated. We put money in, as well as some other investors, including Elon and DFJ, to, to help the company we bought on the IPO. You know, in our, our thought was, because we're not IPO investors usually, but we were like, wow, this, this, I think it was priced at $8 a share or something like that. And we were like, this is a bargain. We know this company very well. It's one of the best performing in our portfolio in terms of its growth. And so we, you know, we took that bet because we really, really felt that the company would pop. And of course, that's what happened. And, and I really think that IPO was an inflection point for the solar industry in terms of putting that negative past behind it and allowing a whole new series of companies to shine. And you know, we saw Vivint go public, we saw Sunrun go public, and we've got Sun Edison and SunPower. Now there's actually a group of solar stocks, and you need that in order to get institutional and and even retail interest in a sector. People need to have choices and you need to have analysts following the companies. And that's exactly what happened. We, you know, when, when SolarCity went public, we got all these analysts coming around, following the company. And now the story is extremely well understood as opposed to being under wraps even, you know, three years ago. I know you're on first name basis with Elon, who of course is Elon Musk of both Tesla and, and I think he's the chair as well of Solar City. What was he like before he became a master of the universe? <laughs> well, he's always been a master of the universe in my mind. He's an amazing man. I mean, he's just so smart, so hardworking, so visionary, so committed to using business to change the planet's thorniest problems. And, you know, he confronts some of our very difficult realities that we face, and yet he's he's got 
a huge sense of optimism and a sense of humor and and you know he gets people around him to work really hard too so i think america is so lucky that he and his brother and his cousins and his sister i mean that that family chose to emigrate you know eventually to the united states uh, we are certainly the better for it and i think he's definitely someone that is changing the face of our our world in a very positive way you talked about the clean tech meltdown, the Solyndra scandal, and, and sort of a general bloom off the rose uh, that, that occurred in that sector a few years ago. You stuck through it, obviously, with SolarCity and others. Why, why do you think you had a, a sort of longer view on it than, than some other investors? I think our mission helps us there. All venture capitalists have a fairly long-term outlook because you don't build a young company and expect to exit it in two or three years. I mean, sometimes in bubble environments, that does happen, but that's not really the norm. So from the get-go, the venture investors, you know, we're always extremely supportive of Solar City. I mean, it's just such a remarkable management team there. And as we got into it, we began to see inexorably how large the market would become. And so while we did face various hurdles, we felt that they were not going to be and we also felt that they masked a much more positive, robust market size, scope, and growth potential. And so we just hung in there. And, you know, the company was always able to raise money and, you know, usually at very nice upticks. Now, subsidies always comes up in this discussion. Some people, you know, say, oh, clean tech is held up by subsidies. In fact, I think some the, the end of some of those subsidies sometimes is a question mark for Solar City, But you know, obviously, oil and gas and, and fossil fuels get subsidies as well. You're something of an expert on subsidies. How do you think this all plays out and, and, and what should the public policies be? Well, thank you, David. I guess I'm a little bit of an expert on subsidies. You know, I do have a pretty serious day job. But we did write a paper a few years ago called What Would Jefferson Do? in which we just explained to people. We went back in history and saw, you know what? Our country has always created incentives for new energy transitions, you know, even back in the days of wood and coal, but especially starting in 1916 with oil and 1926 and then eventually with nuclear in the mid part of the last century. We have became a leading economy. We, we had cheap available quantities of energy. So there's no knocking the approach. What has happened is that something that we used to do very regularly became, again, politicized. And all of a sudden people are saying, oh, wind and solar, you know, it's corporate welfare. They're so subsidized compared to others. And so our paper, along with many others since, really just emphatically prove that wrong, that actually the subsidies for other energy sources have not only been bigger, but they've been around for a long time. And that that's where we are today with, you know, the gift that keeps on giving the subsidies that are embedded in the tax code. So when you turn to the investment tax credit that has driven and helped to drive the solar boom and, and the PTC for wind, what you have to do is say, okay, these are, you know, they get extended for seven or eight years at a time or, or less compared to an advantage for the traditional industries that is permanent. So if we're going to have a level playing field, we need to either get rid of all the subsidies, and, and that's kind of a be careful what you wish for from the traditionals, because those, those subsidies make a big difference in terms of the profitability of those industries. But if you want to do that, then many people believe that solar and wind can compete uh, very well 
It's just that it's politically very difficult to do. And so in the interim, if we're not going to dismantle it for the traditional industries, you know, there's no intellectual basis to say we should take it away for solar and wind in a kind of rapid way. I mean, maybe someday we, we won't need them and as the costs are coming down. But by the same token, if others have them, why don't we deserve them? We're creating jobs. We're addressing our nation's need for energy at the same time that we're addressing our planet's need for a lower carbon future. I think sometimes people get defensive that we ask for these things when we have a record of accomplishment to prove that this is an investment well worth taking. And the ITC has leveraged tens of billions of dollars of private sector money along the way to to help grow this industry. The other parameter of policy is the renewable sort of goals of portfolio standards. And uh, those have also, you know, had a huge effect on driving the industry. I think, you know, some of the states that set goals, you know, in years past have, have blown through them. I think you just were on record the other day saying that the new goals that the Obama administration and others are, are setting will blow through those as well. Um, are we at the are we at the renewable tipping point already? Well, I believe we are at the tipping point for clean energy and that when you have quarter after quarter, you see, you know, the majority of new generation capacity coming from renewables. When you see the growth of electric vehicles and traditional car companies coming out with their own models, this is what the early phase of a transition looks like. And uh, while the numbers as a percentage of the whole are still not super compelling, the rate of growth and the rate of change and at the same time decline in other sectors like coal, uh, if you just do the math, you know, that turns into a, a situation where you will in many places see renewables become, you know, a very mainstream source of electricity and you'll see growing amounts of, of electric vehicles. When you close the new fund, uh, we at Impact Alpha wrote a story, and I think the lead said something like, uh, if you want to spot the next Tesla or Solar City, watch Nancy Fund. What are you looking at now? Well, that's, that's very kind of you. We are looking at just an incredible array of, of companies, of entrepreneurs. And I, I just want to give a shout out to all the clean tech entrepreneurs out there. This field is on fire on, or maybe that's not a good <laughs> metaphor. This field is very, very exciting and, and growing. And the quality of entrepreneurs in in our deal flow compared to the, you know, the very early days, it's, it's just night and day. So it's a really great time to have dry powder. And there's a lot to be done. I mean, we've made invest, you know, microgrids. We invested in advanced microgrid solutions, a company run by Susan Kennedy in California. You know, microgrids are so important in, in terms of linking up renewable energy with battery storage, with the kind of software that allows you to take your power from the, the source that it makes the most sense relating to cost, relating to grid strength and need, and really helps you avoid building expensive new peakers. So the, the combination of solar and storage, of wind and storage, is revolutionary. And we're just at the beginning of that because it really allows you to do something you've never been able to do, which is to manage your, your inter intermittent resources in a way that makes them look more like baseload. The field of food is very, very popular. Food, ag, natural resource management like water and energy. Those are up and coming areas of investment that clearly have impact and, and we feel will be able to drive 
significant returns. The whole circular economy, the reuse, repurpose, you know, don't give away or throw away your old clothes, put them on an online marketplace and have those, those items be reused and, and driven back into the economy. That's an area we like. We're also about to do our first international investment in sort of bringing electricity to the 1.3 billion people out there that don't have electricity and are using things like kerosene lamps for their lighting and and have all kinds of horrible health consequences from that. Right now, because of the advances in solar and storage in, in many places in the developing world, you know, it's cheaper to have your lights in your home come from a little solar panel and a little storage unit than it is from a kerosene lamp. You know, a lot of great NGO work and and public sector work there over the past decade, and now it's ready to scale. And so that's an area that we're very excited about. Well, thank you so much, Nancy. We're very excited to watch what you guys have coming down the pike. And, you know, do you have any closing thoughts about either DBL or, or impact investing in general? Well, I would just like to close, David, with the message to others out there that this is the perfect time if you're contemplating kind of jumping in, if you're already well along in your career or whether you're starting a career, the field is ready to expand and we need more people that, you know, have financial skills and a commitment to, you know, making the world a better place, you know, broadly defined. And so as I travel around the country, I'm just always inspired by the the level of interest in what we're doing. But we're A, a, t- a tiny firm, and B, there aren't that many firms like us. It's growing every day. But I would just encourage people to to try to jump into this field now so that we can all reap the benefits of a bigger field where we have more collegial support and where we can really make that difference that we're all trying to to make. Terrific. Well, thank you so much. Thank you, David. Now that you, David, are on a first-name basis with Nancy, who is on a first-name basis with Elon Musk, that's pretty exciting. That is this is this your your life dream has been accomplished? That makes us uh, brothers-in-law or something, doesn't it? I, th- I think so. I- <laughs> <laughs> well, the, yeah. The, one of one of the takeaways is if you have a an impact fund, it helps to have Elon Musk as one of your main partners. Well, again, and certainly, if you want to talk about getting filthy rich, Elon Musk is probably a good way, place to start. I thought the Pandora investment was interesting as well. I hadn't really considered that as being an impact investment or an impact opportunity. Well, they get asked that question a lot, obviously, uh, because how is a streaming music service an impact investment? And I think she would say that it's um, it's based in Oakland and it's creating jobs and and uh, it also helps diversify the portfolio. So you know they are an example of they want to they want to bring you know their investors a good a good return. They've obviously had some some big successes with Solar City with Tesla, um, and that's what uh, brought these these new investors in for their new fund. But they're not averse to to, to finding a good opportunity in, in some other area as well. So are you saying that they they would want to be judged on the totality of their portfolio and not necessarily in any one investment within it? 
Yes, and they do say, and Nancy said in the interview, that uh, they have job growth and economic development goals um, across the portfolio, even even in the new fund. And uh, Pandora fit into that box, um, you know, be, basing itself in in Oakland in a in a relatively low income area for the for at least as the Bay Area goes. Which, in some ways, by the way, is getting back to kind of like an old school model of impact. Ironically enough, obviously, public pension funds have often for a long time had community investing programs. They just don't call it impact. So, for example, New York Common Retirement Fund is actually invested in Huffington Post and BuzzFeed through a New York State private equity investment program that it had, which was meant to bring jobs to New York. Well, that was part of the genesis was a, was real economic development. And the, but, but what they've really made their name on, obviously, is the renewable energy and the portfolio, and and in particular. Um, Obviously, Solar City and 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 Tesla, and then there's some new investments in in off-grid electricity and and other things. And so she she did take a bet on those things when they weren't as popular as they are now. Right, and 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 also she talked about how she initially took the PRI funding, the that's the program-related investment funding. So that's the funding from foundations that has to be explicitly below market returns. But now with this new fund, this latest fund, they certainly uh, are trying to attract just pure capital market returns, right? Just pure private capital, people who want to put their money to work to make as much money as possible. Well, there's an interesting nuance in that because it's the program-related investments, as you say, cannot, as their primary objective, seek to make a lot of money. If it turns out that they make a lot of money, that's fine and all to the good. And in fact, that money goes back to the foundation and gets gets paid out again uh, in grants or in new investments. But uh, yeah, they didn't they, they weren't allowed to, to, to think at the at the get go that they were going to make a lot of money. Uh, but it, as, as we heard in, in that first fund, they in fact did. So David, do you think that Nancy represents the mainstreaming of impact investing? I think certainly it's, you know, it's an example of that. I mean, there are a few funds now. I mean, for one thing, she's an example that on your third fund with a proven track record, it's a lot easier to raise money than on your, your first fund. And we've seen other funds uh, in, in their second and third rounds, you know, raise quite, you know, impressive sums of money. You know, LeapFrog uh, raised $450 million and, and and others are, are out there now. So part of it is just a natural progression as funds get more experience under their belt um, and show that there's a investment proposition that they have the management and the track record, you know, that gets easier. So that's just sort of natural. But I do think on the front of what people are investing in, the investment propositions are becoming more mainstream, as you say. So LeapFrog, for example, invests in sort of micro insurance and financial services for the for, for low income people in, in Africa and finds that they can sell services to folks you know, insurance for people who, you know, are afraid their their ox or their cow might 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 die, and that's going to plunge them back into poverty or 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 what have you. Um, uh, Elevar, for example, has a proposition that you know poor people around the world don't actually pay less for goods and services; uh, they actually pay more and for quite inferior quality services in some cases. And if you can give them something better and cheaper, there's ready customers out there. So, people are sort of refining these investment propositions. And finding that, you know, when they work and they prove out, you know, at least, you know, the first fund works, then then investors come back for the second fund. Well, David, I definitely think that there is a spectrum of investor expectations and a spectrum of asset classes out there. Uh, so if we can have funds like DBL that are attracting commercial capital, and then there still is uh, a role for below market capital from whether it's foundation PRI investments coming through or, or others that are trying to, to help attract more of that 
private mainstream capital. So I think that there is a whole spectrum out there of uh, both investor expectations and needs for different types and sources of capital at different times in both the enterprise life cycle, but also in the fund uh, life cycle. Sounds like a great topic for another podcast, Brian. Uh, riveting, riveting, I'm sure. <laughs> it will be. Uh, so stay tuned for that. But with that, this has been another episode of Impact Voices brought to you by Impact Alpha. You can follow us on Twitter at Impact Alpha and check us out online at impactalpha.com. For David Bank and Imogen Rose Smith, I'm Brian Walsh. Thanks, as always, to Isaac Silk, our producer. And until next time, 